everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Shep Hyken, a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including Moments of Magic and The Cult of the Customer. He is a frequent keynote speaker on the topic of enhancing the customer experience, and he is the creator of the Customer Focus, which is a globally acclaimed training program. Thanks so much for joining us today, Shep. Man, that is a great introduction that would make my mother proud. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Your title is CAO, which stands for Chief Amazement Officer, and a vast majority of your content has this focus on exceeding expectations. So why is amazement so important as a leader? Well, you know, first of all, the title is a fun title. I mean, I'm actually the owner of the company, but how boring is that? He's the owner, you know, (laughs) and everybody who's high up can be a president or a CEO. So I went for a creative solution. And I said, hey, I'll call myself the chief amazement officer. So amazement is something I talk about in many or write about in many of my books and articles, talk about in many of my keynote speeches. And the idea behind being amazing is that people want to do business with people they know, like, and trust. That's an old saying. But when you hear them refer to why they love them, it's like, wow, that's an amazing company. And what amazement is, it's actually pretty simple. It's not that it's over the top, blow me away. You've exceeded my expectations by far. No, it's, you know, you're just consistently and predictably a little bit better than average. In other words, average, if it's on a scale of one to five is three, just be a little better than that. And and maybe the expectation is, yeah, I hope it's okay. Making a titch better is what you're about because what you want your customers and even your employees to say about you is, I love working here. I love doing business with them because, uh, you know what? They're always friendly. Uh, my customers always say they're always uh, quick to get back to me. They're always so knowledgeable. They're always so helpful. This is what you want people saying about you and your organization. The word always followed by something good. So it's the consistent and predictable experience that creates customer amazement. And that to me is a first step because uh, of, you know, you've got to deliver great service along with a great product. And if you start putting it in terms where people can relate to it and that it's attainable, that's the first step in creating that culture that focuses on, you know, creating an amazing experience for your customer. Hmm. I'm I'm curious. And a lot of the questions that we get from our listeners talk about origin story or how our guests got to where they are. How did you kind of figure out your why as you were building this company and building an organization around your principles and your beliefs around that topic? Sure. Well, what really started it all was I didn't have a job. <laughs> it's like pretty much right out of college. I was working for a company that I thought I'd work for for the rest of my life if I could. And about four months into my career uh, after college, I'd work for them throughout college and even summer jobs. They said, you no longer have a job, but let's go back to the very, very beginning. Uh, My first job, I actually worked at a pharmacy when I was eight years old, nine years old. My grandpa owned a pharmacy and he just taught me some good discipline about work ethic. And let's jump to age 12. I had started to do magic as a hobby and I did my first magic show for for pay. I was paid $16, actually $15 plus a dollar tip to entertain about 20 little screaming kids. And When I was finished, my mom said, you got to write a thank you note. And my dad said, great idea. And a week later, 
call, call the parents, thank them again, and ask them how they like the show. I had a great idea. And then my dad said, get specific. What did they really like about the show? What were their favorite tricks? And if you do this enough times, you'll start to hear people talking about the favorite tricks and some tricks they won't talk about. He says, get rid of those that they don't talk about and replace them with ones they will. So I had no idea that my parents were teaching me to show appreciation, get feedback, act on the feedback for process improvement. These are tenants in how customer service and experience is created within an organization. And I'm learning this when I'm 12. So it became kind of like, uh, I don't know if I was born with it in my DNA, but it was injected into me at age 12. <laughs> so we jumped to after college when uh, the company I was working for said, we're shutting everything down. You can leave right now or stay along and for a little while. Well, I eventually figured out what I wanted to do. And that was be a professional speaker. I saw speakers. I said, those guys, that looks like entertaining. To me, I could do that. I had the magic background. By the way, I graduated from birthday party magic shows to working in nightclubs. Hmm. Uh, one of my favorite stories when I was 16, I actually was booked to do, I don't know, 12 weeks of comedy and magic over the next year and a half, two years at the Playboy Club. What a great job for a 16 and 17 year old young kid. But anyway, I digress. Uh, I, I had the background of entertainment and I knew I could do a speech and I went to the bookstore and I looked at all the business books they had, which back then was one shelf's worth of business books. There were some motivational books, but these books that really drew my attention to them were, were books about customer service. There was this book in search of excellence written about 1983 by Tom Peters. Uh, there was this uh, book by Ron Zemke and Carl Albrecht on customer service. Jan Carlson had written a book in the mid eighties and that even furthered my interest in really developing this out. And so that's where it all started. So it's a long story to get where we are, but that's the background. Really interesting. And one article that you wrote that really stuck out with me was entitled Five Ways to Be the Disney of Your Industry. And you started that article by saying, and I think it kind of resonates given your backstory, it's not luck nor magic that creates success, it's hard work. And I wanna talk specifically about the first two items on your list, which were hiring and onboarding. So as mm -hmm. leaders of organizations, small and large, how do we think about adding to our team and then bringing them on board to set them and then set our organization up for success? Yeah, so hiring is key. We don't just want to hire the right person for the job. And we don't just want to hire somebody. And by the way, that would be number one. Let's look at are they right for the job? Number two, and these are the criteria. Do they fit the personality of the company? And that's important. They could be great at what they do, but if their personality is counter to what we try to develop in our culture, we don't want that person and I think is a kind of a, a, an afterthought is number three, is this the kind of person that others would enjoy working with, okay? So I look at that as a really important criteria. And then the onboarding side of it is super important because once we establish that they're good at what they do and they're a good fit, we wanna get them into our culture as quickly as possible. And we, I know that what Disney does is they start uh, focusing on the culture even as you're walking in the door for, you, for the interview, you start to understand what they're about. And onboarding is a process that Disney believes starts to happen before you're even hired. So we could take that lesson to the bank. What can we 
do in our businesses that's similar to what Disney does. There's a company out there, a, a food retailer, High V. I love this re retailer. One of their hiring practices, if they're gonna hire a manager and assistant manager, is they want that candidate, if it's from the outside, to walk into the store a little bit early prior to the interview and walk around and take note. And when they sit down, it's like, what did you notice? So in a sense, the onboarding isn't, you know, high V onboarding the customer or onboarding the, uh, the applicant. It's the applicant sharing information that lets the interviewee or interviewer know that, hey, this person kind of gets what we're about. And when we know that they understand us before they even come to the job, that's, to me, that's part of onboarding. So those are just a couple of thoughts. Well, that's a really nice segue to lesson three in the article, which is everyone has three jobs at Disney and they describe it as do the job you were hired to do, take care of the guests, and then keep the park clean. <laughs> yep. There's a sense that we have customers that are internal, maybe the people that we work with if we're managing them, but also we have customers that are external. Disney kind of has this real simple but powerful way to think about it. How do we more broadly think about what is critical for success when we're dealing with people, maybe those internal customers or those internal stakeholders, and then also transition that to the external stakeholders that we all have? Sure. Number one is what's happening on the inside of an organization is felt on the outside. Number two, everybody, you know, is supposed to take care of their customer. And that customer might be an internal customer that uh, I support who that person I'm supporting will maybe take care of an outside customer. Maybe I'm doing something internally that's really important to the process uh, overall. So number two is to let that uh, employee know where they fit into the customer service and experience world. People will say, well, I never even see the customer. I'm really not part of that whole customer service experience thing. On the contrary. So Matt, have you traveled and checked your bags ever on an airplane? I have. You have. And have you ever lost that bag? Uh, yes, unfortunately. I hate when that happens. So, you know, the person who lost that bag was really somebody that maybe didn't put it on the plane, put it on the wrong plane, you know, whatever. That person never sees the customer, but if they don't do their job, they're going to fail the customer. Makes sense? And actually they fail two people. They not only fail the passenger who, when they get to the baggage carousel, they don't see their bag, but they also fail the internal customer who is a fellow employee who works at the counter of the baggage claim area that now has to deal with the unhappy customer that walks up and says, you lost my bags. <laughs> so uh, everybody has some part of the process that they're involved in, whether they're completely behind the scenes and will never see the customer's smiling face or somebody that's right on the very front line. Mm -hmm. And it's important to let everyone know where they fit into that, that process or that journey that the customer goes on. I want to shift your lesson four in the article and make it more of a personal question. So lesson four is know the details that count. When you look back at your career, can you talk a little bit about the details that really mattered in getting you to where you were in that chief amazement officer role? Sure. I can go back to back when I'm 12 years old again, doing birthday parties. And there was a really important detail that my parents taught me. Uh, and remember that story even though it's a good story, the lessons were, you know, show appreciation, get feedback and listen to that customer and then act on it 
for process improvement. But something else my father taught me was about being on time because it creates confidence. And I started to think about it and, and being on time is just one aspect of it, but it's really a metaphor for something bigger. So I had my magic show set up where it's in a box where I walked in, you tell me where you want me to perform. I put the box down, open it up and I do the show and I put all the props back exactly where they're supposed to go so I can move on to the next show and the next show. And I would do sometimes three and four on a Saturday. I do eight to 10 throughout the week. And, and my dad noticed that if the party was at two o'clock in the afternoon, I said, I, I told him one day, I could show up at two minutes to two and I'm ready to go. And he said, you know, at what point do you think the parents look at their watch and wonder whether you're going to show up or not? I go, oh, that's right. You know, I can see where that would create anxiety. He says, so you need to show up like, you know, 15, 20 minutes early, but even better than that, call them a week ahead of time and remind them that you know where they live, what their address is, and what time you're supposed to be there. I said, great ideas. So you may notice, Matt, that um, in the process of us working together to do this interview, two, two things really important happened, aside from us deciding we were going to do it, is my assistant probably reached out to you yesterday or late last week to confirm today's interview. Mm -hmm. Number two, you did not wait for me. I showed up exactly on time, actually one minute early. Um, and, I, and of course, I felt really you know, gracious that you showed up as well. That's so, you know, showing up on time is, is so much. Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, used to tell his athletes, if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. Hmm. And that was so important to him that he actually at Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin, there's a huge, huge clock. And if you didn't know the story, you'd say, why is that clock 15 minutes fast? Because it's Lombardi time. Hmm. And the, the idea behind being on time or even early is a metaphor for how you handle other details in your life. So let's close it out. So lesson five in your article is create timeless service standards. Can you talk a little bit about some of those timeless things? And you maybe have hit on a few of them that you think resonate beyond whatever your customer is or whoever your customer is, how you can actually show up as an effective leader. Yeah. So what are the, what are the words that follow something uh, a word always, the words that follow the word always. We always do this. We always um, open on time. We always get back to our customers within a certain amount of time. You know, we're always friendly. We're always knowledgeable. So if you take the word always, whatever follows that, those become your standards. And we want, and by the way, uh, many of these standards are personality driven, their common sense that unfortunately aren't always so common if you've been in, in situations with people and companies that don't necessarily follow these uh, higher standards, if you will. But these standards are pretty much timeless. Now, we can look at other methods of doing customer service and experience. There's digital, there's artificial intelligence. Those aren't standards. Those are timely and those will shift. But I'm going to tell you what's never changed. Customer wants to do business with you, and when they choose to do it, when they're finished, they want to be happy. That's it. That's never going to change. It's been this way for decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years. That's timeless. What are the standards that drive that? Be polite. Say please. Say thank you. Follow up. Make sure they're happy. You know, you know always show appreciation. Be proactive. These are confidence builders, and when you start to look at what these standards are, you'll start to look at how you can create them on a systematic way within your culture. And, and drive that excellence.
one of the books you wrote was entitled Moments of Magic. Can you explain yep. a little bit on the backstory of how that came to be and how we can all utilize that in our, in our own professional lives? Sure. So uh, again, I was a magician, so it made sense to tie in what I love with what I, what I do in a more serious level. So the moment of magic was a way to describe a positive experience that a customer has. Jan Carlson years ago wrote about uh, and actually told the story about how he turned his airline around. And it was very timely at the time and became timeless as we realized that, you know, 40 years later and 40 years from now, this concept will be valid. Anytime one of our customers comes into contact with any aspect of what they do, they form an impression. That's the moment of truth. Jan Carlson said they can be good and bad. I added a third way. They can be good, they can be bad, and they can be average, mediocre, if you will. And I call the bad ones moments of misery, the average ones moments of mediocrity, and the positive ones are moments of magic. Now, a moment of magic, it can be anything better than average, a tiny bit better to like blow me away over the top. And the best companies consistently and predictably create at least a little bit better than average experience all the time. It's consistent and predictable moments of magic. Well, Moments of Magic is a wonderful and inspiring way to end the conversation and shift us to our final rapid fire question that I have the pleasure of asking all okay. of you. And question number one is this, Shep, if you could describe your leadership style in one word, what would that word be? Um, I've learned to be collaborative. Collaborative would be my word. I like working with people, hearing what they have to say, and then moving forward with decisions. And our last rapid fire question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Wow. Um, do you want personal or business or personal and business? Let's go with the and. Okay, good, good. Let's, uh, I'll start with the personal. Um, I was told just before I got married to treat each day like it's my last and each night like it's my first. Hmm. <laughs> so, and I love that because what that means is you're just embracing life, uh, especially with the person that's most important to you. Uh, when I was just starting my business to become a professional speaker, a friend of mine, Bud Dietrich, he was my mentor. He said to me, Shep, you think your job is doing the speech. And by the way, I want you to think about what your version of doing a speech is. He says, that's not your job. Your job is to get the speech. The job isn't doing the speech, it's getting the speech. And I thought, wow. So this, is, this was inspiring to me because I realized if I would just work 40 hours a week at getting the business, I would get the business because a lot of people in my business think that writing the speech is the real work. No, it's not. It's getting the speech. And I think that's a metaphor for many other uh, ideas and what we sell in different types of businesses. So well, there you go. That is a stellar metaphor to leave us with. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, all they need to do is Google my name, Shep Hyken, or go to hyken.com, my YouTube channel, uh, shep.tv. I'll just put my name in the Google search. You'll find lots of ways to connect. Well, thank you for all of the great insight and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Learn to Lead Podcast. And you can find our organization Ability at Ability.com. Be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast.